0: The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Powerful teaching attributed to Kuan Yin, Bodhisattva of Compassion. Tonight I'd like to speak on the seventh awakening factor, equanimity, the Upeka bojanga. I'd like to speak of it in, first in a general broad sense, its expression and how it is enfolded in compassion, just as this uh, powerful teaching of Kuan Yin. And then some of the specifics of the bojanga Upeka, how it affects our practice in the moment. And then uh, attitudes to cultivate in order to nurture the upekka bojanga, We'll find that the way of navigating ourselves through life, through the vicissitudes of life is impossible without the upekka, without balance of mind, and without the, uh, the compassion that guides it. Standing on our conviction of what is right, what is true, can only arise out of this balance, this profound, deep balance of mind and heart, allowing us to act out of compassion, even willing uh, to die for it if necessary. Once the Bodhisattva was born as a banyan deer, deep in the forests. And she grew up and became queen of the banyan deer herd. The same time, a new king of humans came to the land and he loved nothing more than hunting. He and his uh, courtiers would go out through the glens and meadows, fields, and hunt all day long, come back with cart-filled uh, cartfuls of uh, deer, boar, rabbit, bear, anything they could find. they loved hunting. It was even more problematic, not uh, for the people of the land, not just the animals, because the king would call farmers and merchants uh, to uh, ride the carts and carry the animals and so forth. So the people were discouraged, despondent, and they sat around to figure out a way to make it work for everyone. So they figured they could build a big, huge stockade somewhere in the middle of the forest, drive a couple of of deer in, and then invite the king and his hunters to come and hunt that way. And they did that, and because the king wanted his people to be happy, uh, it was satisfactory that the merchants could go back to their business and the farmers back to the land. Came out, the king came out and saw a huge stockade with a platform built up upon which he could stand. And there were two huge herds of deer, one of them being the herd of the banyan deer queen. He stood and looked through the herd and saw them running all over the place trying to escape and so forth. Amongst the herd he saw the Queen and the leader of the other herd, and thought to himself, "These are two magnificent beings you could tell by their disposition. so he ordered that they not be that they be spared and so every few days the King or the hunters would come stand on the platform, and there'd be a rain of arrows, and not only would many be killed but many more harmed, uh, trying to escape and wounded, and so their suffering would continue. It was, it was terrible to see these delicate animals uh, trying to get out, and the, and the queen and the leader of the other herd struggled to find in their, all the ways they had in their knowledge to escape, jump and dig, uh, squeeze in between. They could find no way. So after a few days of this, they, they got together for a meeting, the Banyan Deer Queen and the leader of the other herd, and said, this, this is unbearable. Not only are our herds being decimated and killed, but so many more are being harmed every time the king comes to hunt. I thought of a solution, terrible as it is, it will spare so much more suffering that we have a lottery uh, and every Every few days when the hunters come, whoever's drawn the straw from your herd or my herd, they will stand, offer themselves and, get, and uh, to be killed uh, to uh, prevent further harm from the other herds. So one day the king came and there was one deer shaking, waiting, and he thought, These are wise leaders indeed. I understand what they're trying to do." And he said to his attendants, We will do this. We will just take the one deer every few days and follow their wisdom. And this day he unstrung his bow, put his arrow back in the quiver, put his head down and went back. That night, he dreamed of a deer streaming through the forests of his mind. The next time the straw came up, a doe pregnant with her child chose the straw from the other herd and went to her leader and said, I will gladly give my life, but spare me for now till after the fawn is born. But her leader said, the law is the law and we can't have someone else draw. You drew the straw, you have to go. Afraid and distraught, she went to the banyan deer queen, knelt before her and said, please, you know, can you help me? I'll gladly give my life as soon as my fawn is born. The banyan deer, sitting there in all her grace, her delicacy and yet power, looked with her doe eyes, her moist mouth, and said, of course, I will help you. Don't worry, you find safety in this herd for now. I will take care of this. And the doe jumped up happy and then went off. The banyan deer knew that there was no one else who could take her place but herself. She got up and she walked amongst her herd with her grace, her dignity, her delicate power and the sun playing off the golden hue of her hair, the hide. And just as she walked through the herd, all the other deer of her tribe were soothed, and they could see that there was, as long as she was around, there was hope. The sky was blue and clear, and their leader was not afraid. So the next morning, the the hunters came, and the queen, Banyan Deer Queen, stood there. Recognized by the hunters, they said, uh, he sent a messenger to the uh, king saying come quickly so he came racing out in his chariot and retinue of followers stood up on the scaffolding and looked down and there indeed was the banyan deer queen he said why are you there you understood I'm sure that I freed you and the leader of the other herd what are you doing there and why were you in my dream the other night and the Banyan Deer Queen said, I'm here to save two others. The, the, our agreement was that only one should die, not two. And this doe carries a child. So I do what I have to do. You do what you have to do. The King looked down at this uh, magnificent being. He said, you're a noble deer indeed. Understand what you're doing. But why are you doing that? Why would you give your life for this being? There should be no one in my herd who suffers, said the Banyan Deer Queen. No one at all. Now do what you have to do. The king thought and pondered for a while he said, I, I think you're right. What ruler himself or herself can be free if their people suffer? You are a great, great queen. And because you've taught me this for the fee of this lesson, I'm going to set you free and all of your herd. Now you can go in peace. Great king, said the queen. How can I go in peace? Where would I go to be living in peace? If I leave and my tribe leaves, think of the anguish and suffering of the other tribe. There'd be no respite from a rain of arrows, suffering, pain, death. How can I go in peace? Again, the king felt something tremble in his heart. And they stared at each other, eye to eye, her large doe eyes, almond, dark, brightness of her being, fearlessness, standing there on her truth. You would risk your freedom and that of all of your herd? Yes, I would, and I am. And the king again thought, Never have I seen such deep compassionate concern and nobility from any being, human or animal. I will set both of you free, both herds free. You're all free to go. I understand now what it takes to be a wise king or queen, ruling their subjects with care, with compassion, with generosity. Everyone in the realm should be protected. So now you go and take your herd, and tell the other leader to take her herd, go back into the forest and live freely. How can I go back in the forest and live freely when I know what it's like to suffer, be afraid of the hunter's arrow or spear? Think of all the other four-legged creatures. They too are in your realm, are they not? Do they not fear your weapons? Do you not chase them down and split up their families? How can I go free? Think of the anguish. Consider freeing all these other beings of your realm if you wish to be a true king. Never have I felt the depth of such care for living beings, said the king of humans. You are right, he said. No one in my realm should suffer. I set them all free then. No more shall we chase any of the animals with sword or spear or bow and arrow. You can go back into the forest and tell them all that they're free. Now will you go in peace? Great king, wise king. How could I go in peace? What about the beans who live in the trees and the air currents who care for their young in nests? What about the stones and spears and nets that would trap them? Do they not also live in your realm? Do they not also deserve to breathe the air of this of your kingdom? Think of their suffering. King did think, trembling, stone rolling off of his heart. He said, yes, you're right. These defenseless ones of the air, they too are in my realm. You have fierce determination, great queen. You're probably trying to make farmers and vegetarians of us all as well. <laughs> but again, I see your point. They too shall be spared. Now will you go in peace? And with only half a wink, the Banyan Deer Queen said, Who well, who, if I go, who will speak for the silent ones of the rivers and streams and lakes? I know you have them also in your realm. Think of the nets and spears that will trap them, harm them. Do they not also deserve to be protected and safe and happy in your realm? The trembling king, with now a deep awakening of heart, said, noble being, tears streaming down his face, I have never seen life like you see it. I have never felt the way you feel. The fish, too, of my realm shall swim free. Now you go in peace. (laughs) The Banyan Deer Queen looked around at the clear sky. Birds were gathering in the trees. Sounds of the other animals came from outside the stockade, all convening on this potent, potent, Moment. And she said, Yes, I can go in peace. She jumped up, clapped her hooves together, and ran off as the gates were opened, and they all went. And the king, too, he went back to his life and ruled his kingdom with a generosity and compassion previously unknown for thousands of generations and left a mark that also lasted for thousands of generations more. And that spot where they had this conversation, he erected a monument with a picture of the great Banyan Deer Queen and said homage to the Banyan Deer, teacher of kings and queens, humans and gods. She chose that moment, standing on her truth, protected and informed by a great compassion, Mahakaruna, and the great wisdom of Upeka, without which she would not have been able to stand and let the, her compassionate action flow freely and so strongly, so truly. Upeka, Bojanga, means literally the balancing of energy. It means being in the center, residing or dwelling in the middle of all things. Our Queen had calls from every direction, within and around, from all the different forces of the realm she lived in and the forces of the humans. She stood where she was, neither pulled nor pushed by any extreme of desire or fear, just stood on her truth. Upeka is what we need both in our meditation life, in the inner life, in attending to our moment-to-moment experience, as well as in ordinary, everyday life. It anchors one in the middle path beyond the agitation of extremes. The extremes may be there, but the upeka stands outside of them. Upeka is a balancer of the forces of the mind. Also, it navigates through their changing nature, the vicissitudes, inner and outer, the excesses and lacks and is able to be with them with both balance and compassion. The non-attachment of equanimity holds the tension arc of contradictions. We couldn't do the practice without it. Equanimity arises in the very first, first moment of mindfulness and builds, grows upon each moment. But not only is it a means of our practice, it's also a fruition of the constancy of our practice, establishing an attitude of enlightened equanimity towards the changing conditions of the body, of the mind, and life around us. The practice of life from a centeredness, from a being in the middle of things. It's well known by now in in our practice here that how mind states need balancing, how it's essential to ride through the storms, the difficulties, the droughts, and the peaks for deepening. The power of equanimity is, is the balancing of mental faculties. Usually we see them in pairs, uh, such as faith and wisdom, energy and concentration. When there's an excess of energy, we feel our awareness slipping off the flow of experience. We anticipate it, or it's already passed and we're searching for it. We just can't quite touch it. If there's an excess of concentration, we experience often a sinking mind, too absorbed to see clearly what's appearing in the moment. Often in the periods of practice where we start to see really clearly the arising, passing nature of things, where we get a taste of the flavor of Dhamma, of the truth of things. There's a lot of energy, a rush of energy, we get excited and there can follow a lot of imaginative ideas in that flush of excitement. Oh well, I'll give away all my possessions, I'll give all my money away, you know. And immediately, at the retreat ends, I'll sign up to ordain, you know, in Burma or do some long hermitage somewhere. Or we may think of all the ideas of building, you know, building retreat centers. Build all these satellite centers and they'll be all over this country and all the islands of the Pacific and the Atlantic and, you know, our mind just proliferates on how we can do this. Or, I'll go tell my parents and my children and my best friends, and the mind will just spin off that way. Sometimes we find ourselves interpreting every deep experience that happens, the long train of reflections. This can be an excess of the punya, the wisdom. Here is just uh, um, intelligence, intellect, not true wisdom. Wisdom on the level of knowledge, intellectual knowledge. We may start overanalyzing our experience. And then we might feel weighted by doubt. And this could lead to uh, trying another technique. It's not working. So I'll do just awareness of body. No, I think I'll try awareness just of feelings. No, I'll just do awareness of mind. I'll try that. Ten minutes later, no, I'm just going to watch mental states and emotions. A few minutes later, I'll think I'll do metta. No, compassion. Well, Mandita was really nice the other night. I'll try that. And we'll just dance around the different techniques, trying to get it right. And then, of course, we careen from this, um, zestful enthusiasm uh, into doubt, to overexertion, up and down in this way, and then getting you know, indolent, tired, feeling wasted. Well, might as well just go to sleep. This is what the upeka does. It comes in, balances the mind states. In fact, it affects all the mental states, that are there. It starts to bring them all into balance, just naturally, by being mindful, by seeing the excesses or lacks, going into it, feeling them with awareness. We don't have to exert anything to be equanimous. It's the very awareness of the imbalance that starts to bring them back into balance. It keeps one from the extremes, adding there's lack. We feel the the indolence, the energy seems to feel fill the space, to bring it up. Yet remember that the adjustments need only be slight. It's very rare, if not unnecessary, to make radical shifts. It's just the slightest adjustments really required. Cooling out where there's an excess. You know, feeling the excess, the energy, the over-exuberance, exertion, that, that wired sense. And just by feeling it, it brings in the counter calm, concentration, tranquility. Strong upeka, when it's present, requires really no effort to be mindful. When the upekka factor is there, mindfulness just flows out, just tunes to experience and is one with experience. Feel easy, feel relaxed. It's like stepping into the rhythm in catching ways, whether on canoe, surfboard, whatever. You paddle with really even strokes, you know, left, right, like that. There's a certain rhythm to it. Uh, You hit the right speed, you hit the right rhythm with the strokes. You know, not too much, or you're going to paddle too much, wave will come, you'll pearl dive, that is the front of the canoe or the board uh, goes under the water. You paddle not enough, not not the right exertion, and you'll miss the wave. So it's just finding the rhythm, feeling the uplifting sensation of the wave and strokes grow strong, uh, lighter or stronger as needed and there's a certain point where you feel lifted up, you feel carried and you let go and then the wave takes you in that way It's the same with this with our practice stepping into the rhythm, going with the flow of what's happening, keeping this balance of mind and the mindfulness just arises right out of that balance. Once one finds the stride in practice and connects with what's happening, begins to see things as they are, especially noticing how things continuously are in process, appear, disappear, appear, disappear, then a previous more vulnerable practice takes on a greater strength starts to go on its own. This is when we feel carried by the practice, carried by the Dhamma. We become then endowed with equanimity. Of course it moves in cycles. We'll have this for a while and then be a period again where we feel off and not connecting. We'll have it again. But each turn of the wheel in that way, there's a greater equanimity and therefore a greater ease, greater ability to be with what's desirous or difficult in practice. So upeka manifests as a sense of ease and balance, of settling back and letting the experience do the work. Connecting with the wave or connecting with the flow of the river and just going with it. It also has that capacity to respond to experience in a very skillful way. I think of it like bamboo, equanimity is like bamboo mind. Bamboo, the variety in the tropics in Polynesia or Asia, is this real tall bamboo that has a thick core, hollow center. And yet it's not too thick, that it's not very flexible and supple. So even the great storms of the tropics can bend this bamboo all the way, one side, and then another direction, and yet another direction, all directions, but its tendency is always to come back to center. Its very uh, vulnerability and hollowness is its strength. Its suppleness is its power. The proximate cause for upekka, bojanga, is wise attention to the constancy of mindfulness, with the intention to cultivate the equanimity. <clears throat> the equanimity is what produces the purest mindfulness. So at a certain point, they're just the same. It's the mindfulness or the equanimity that brings about the balance. In the factors, faith with wisdom, energy with concentration. The storms of practice, whether intense pleasure or intense pain, then become uh, like the winds of circumstance, in which the bamboo can bend this way or bend that way, uh, but its very emptiness is what brings it back to center. Equanimity has a non-preferential nature, that is, is, it's non-reactive. Generally, without this balance of mind, we tend to shove aside our dislikes or cling to our preferences, which is just the opposite of equanimity, grasping or pushing away, the reactive mind, clinging in aversion. Instead, The depth of equanimity is the acceptance of things as they are. It's seeing things as they are. And in the seeing there's this acceptance. Therefore it has that transforming power of the energies of longing, or the depressive states of desire, of fear, attachment, aversion. How to, what attitudes help sustain, hold this being in the middle of things, in the middle of contradictions? What holds the equanimity? The Buddha spoke of a number of attitudes to cultivate. First one is the balance toward things, possessions, our relationship with our possessions. And we can think of all the things that we surround our life with, clothing or shelter, all the outer adornments. We can think of uh, the earth itself in this regard. Understanding and appreciating our relationship to these things. Are we enslaved or is it skillful means? Is there that balance of care and detachment? Or we find ourselves hanging our image and our sense of security off our possessions. If we we are identified, if we have this sense of owning, then we're likely to be attached, to be attached or enslaved by our things and therefore suffer at the loss of the comfort that they bring. We don't understand right relationship, then there can be ever no true security. Because these things change. Only true security is in the Dhamma, in the truth. If we don't have a true relationship, then everything appears expendable. We don't even know what we need. So we, we, we investigate what is our relationship to our possessions. Do they enhance, beautify, support our lives? Or do they somehow uh, burden our lives with our uh, identified relationship to them? If we investigate and transform a identified relationship to a skillful one, the skillful use, the stewardship of our things, appreciating, respecting, caring for our possessions, our bodies, the earth, Just um, 20 years ago this year, uh, a group of us were in a monastery in the northeast of Thailand with a, a great meditation master at the time, Achan Cha. And he's giving a Dhamma talk, something around our relationship to our, to our things, uh, to the world. And he used the example of his cup is he had a teacup. And he said, this is my favorite teacup. He said, my relationship to this cup should be the way that we relate to all our possessions, and that is to regard it as already broken. So I regard this as already broken, yet I care for it. and I'm always happy to see it. I'm happy to take my teeth from it. But because I see it as already broken, when it does break, there won't be the suffering from the clinging to it. So we can regard all of our things this way. as already gone. Empty. Already broken. Then we won't suffer so much when they lose, when they go. It's also understanding in regard to what we use in our life, that everything comes at a cost. We start to see into the interconnectedness of things, the interrelatedness. Taking a resource from here, you know, depletes something else. It it deepens our appreciation and our care, our respect for how we do use things. With this attitude, we start to rest more in the refuge of simplicity and contentment, rather than the thought of more or coming from a sense of lack, of not enough. Rather, we, we see what we have as enough, learn how to regard what we have as enough. Refuge in Dhamma being our only true security. So, with that simplicity, refuge in simplicity and contentment that that is Dhamma, then how we use our things, how we acquire or share or give will take on a very different light. Relationship of non-identification, relationship of equanimity. The Buddha also recommended cultivating an attitude of balance toward all living beings. You can do this uh, with, through two practices. One is our metta practices, our Brahma-Vihara practices, whereby they are the practice of connectedness, relatedness. And by doing that, we feel a union with all beings. We feel a oneness with all beings. And out of that feeling of oneness, of likeness, of empathy, we will naturally learn to relate to each other with a greater balance, with care and detachment. And the Vipassana practice goes right to the heart of the matter in seeing the true nature of beings, ourselves as nothing but process. We start with ourselves, our own process, Seen with greater and greater clarity and amplification that we are this swirl of transforming elements of body and with the balance of mind, seeing the mind on, on the cellular level, even swifter, even more subtle, even greater velocity of appearing and disappearing the instantaneous flashing forth of this uh, birth and death on the cellular level of each moment's experience. This glimpse of ourselves gives us a glimpse of all beings, in fact, of the entire universe. And it breaks the way we conceive with attachment. The Dhamma vision teaches us how we create samsara in each moment. The insight matures the attitude of of, of equanimity, bringing it more into an enlightened equanimity where the sense of a solidified self is shattered. The illusions and fixations that uh, hang off the idea of a person fall away. If we're not seen on that level, then we're seen on some level with papancha mind, fabricated mind, built around the idea of a person and all the fixations that come around that. The likes and the dislikes, what we want that fixation to remain or how we want it to change. Then our relationship is with an idea. A relationship is with the concept of that person, that being, not with the real person. In this way we become possessed by that papancha consciousness, the attractions, the aversions. It's not a real relationship, it's not a true relationship, which is really, really difficult. That's why we start with ourselves in this practice, the, to develop a right relationship with ourselves. Who are we, really, if we only relate to what we're attracted about, or aversive toward in ourselves, and not take in the whole being? We know what that's like. There's no acceptance. The sense of growth is impeded. There's no invitation to take in all that we are. With our insight practice we begin to understand The nature of our being and understand how we each have natural dispositions towards certain qualities. There are some things that we like and other things that we don't like. They don't have to proliferate and solidify into the fixations of a strong attachment and strong aversion and fear. We have affection for particular characteristics. Certain things Uh, we like, or turn us on, or give us pleasure, make us feel soothed, make us feel seen, recognized. And they arise, if we look closely, when? They arise in a moment of experience. What we see, or what we like in oneself, in another being, then is a moment of experience. We like that particular tone of being, texture, quality, voice, sound, color, shape, form. We like those emotions. We like how they come out, you know. It's like music here. And there, you know, it's not so much like music. It's like a little bit out of harmony. But we look at what we're drawn into or repelled as the truth of the moment. And we see, that's what it is, it's the truth of the moment. Who we are, who a person is, is just a moment's experience. So Sayadaw Pandita used to ask when people were talking about their loved ones, can I get right into it and get them to talk about, you know, their feelings for such and such a person? Then he'd say, Which moment are you in love with? For all moments of experience, which moment are you in love with? You could say it in reverse when we feel a lot of aversion. Which moment are we hating, disliking? Holding on to a particular fixation, or idea that we hold about ourselves, or another person, is painful. There's a lot of suffering there. It draws out that suffering, it proliferates that suffering. The insight that reveals that attachment, and sees it as painful, lets go. That's the nature of insight. It's the nature of insight to let go to loosen the binds of attachment. Not our will to do so, but just by seeing. There we have some neighbors, um, two neighbors across the street, ones we're real friends with uh, and the others no one's friends with. And the ones we're friends with and the neighbors that no one's friends with, are, um, they don't like each other either. And there was an incident over Cutting Hedge, or uh, access down to the lane, uh, to the beach, where there were some strong words, very unpleasant moments between our friendly neighbors and the unfriendly neighbors. And because of those few unpleasant moments, they have been battling in court for over seven years. Just a few unpleasant moments, obsessed with those moments of experience. Four or five lawsuits later. So we can be obsessed on either end of the spectrum, obsessed with how we are attracted and how we want someone to be are obsessed with how we're aversive and don't want someone to be. Either way, we're both obsessed and not having a relationship with a real person, with a real experience, just our idea of it, how we want it to be or not want it to be. And so much is left out. All all the life of those moments are left out. Non-attachment means very deep relations. It doesn't mean the opposite. We might think that non-attachment is insensitive or uncaring, incapable of closeness, but it's just the opposite. You think of attachment as brewing anxiety and fear, and as non-attachment as creating this generosity surround, this great possibility of intimacy, closeness. paradox is, is that the less attachment, the greater the intimacy. The more non- attachment, the closer relations are. Because it's without fear or anxiety or less fear and anxiety. The person relating out of this equanimity, this non-attachment of equanimity, is very open, very available, very sensitive. The discerning wisdom of equanimity separates the elements of mind, you know, the behavior, the actions, from our judgments of the person as being a certain way. That is, when we see our sense of totality, we don't see someone as just greedy or just aggressive or even just as generous or just as loving. But rather, we open up to the whole experience of that person. It's honest, it's true. And that's what makes for more depth. The attitude of care and respect, yet detachment develop around our things and possessions. And the attitude uh, of non-attachment towards other living beings Born from our Brahma Vihara practice, in which is the intimacy of di- direct revelation of connectedness, union, or from the Vipassana, in which through our insight we understand the truth of our being as it really is, just in process, no essential, permanent, separate core, just things as they are. And from that, the the enlarged possibility of intimacy. Keeping company with those who are balanced. If we're round, reactive people, we'll tend to draw out our own reactiveness. So, the opposite of upeka, far enemy. Reactive both with with, uh, excessive attachment or reactive with excessive aversion. Be flooded with those feelings. It's like the magnet that that draws out those qualities in us. Just from association. It's common, common sense, really. If we're around indifferent people, apathetic, uncaring, insensitive people who are more disconnected from themselves or others, the world around them, will be affected that way, the near enemy of equanimity, indifference. Being with others in alignment with our own aspiration, our urge to unfold, has a profound effect in drawing out those like qualities, those balanced qualities in us. People who are balanced, meaning people who, without excessive attachments, without excessive aversions, who don't live in that place a lot, uncaringly. It doesn't mean we give up being with, necessarily renounce our friends and family in that way, people who are suffering but it means taking great care in our own development and growth in the way that uh, nurtures our urge for authenticity and liberation. If we're around certain mentors or elders who help us in the areas where we're enfolded, where we're stuck, the German poet Rilke Uh, in a paraphrase of one of his poems, says, I want to be with those who know secret things or else alone. I want to unfold. I don't want to stay folded anywhere because where I am folded, there I am a lie. So we may be drawn at times around the friends, the mentors or the elders who themselves are charged with that mission of unfolding, of being real. That has an effect, someone else's equanimity, when we don't have it has a profound effect on our own and and vice versa. You see, in, in, in a crisis, if you yourself are balanced, are like bamboo mine in the midst of a storm of difficulty, it has a soothing effect on those around you, it's a refuge, Brings calm. And elders teach us. They, a true elder, a mentor, sees our gold long before we ever see it, often, and guide us to it. So we trust them, and then we're we're willing to hear, carrying criticism as guidance. Paul Reps, uh, that year he lived with us. Uh, He always, he said, he was 87 at the time, for those who came for the second retreat, this uh, uh, lovely old self-styled iconoclastic Zen master who said, all true enlightened people live under bridges, not in the temples, and so forth. It's a real character. But he used to give feedback after the the dhamma talks I gave and he would let me know if he liked it or he didn't. He'd take me back into a back room, and, you know, if he didn't like, if he liked the talk, he'd say something like, uh, you know, he just, he wouldn't hold back. He said, that's the best dhamma talk I've ever heard in my whole life. <laughs> and he'd been hearing them for 70 years, so that, that was very affirming. I felt. <laughs> if he didn't like it, he'd still take me back to the room and say something like, uh, You know, I would just come back from Burma and so I was like Mr. Burmese Buddhist and I'd give a talk, it's kind of quite traditional and certainly rigid at times. And he'd take me back and say, Stephen, you're not Burmese. (laughs) (laughs) You're a Hawaiian-American. Come from your own depth. You know, and he'd give me a twinkle or something and, and say, okay, you can go. You know, and I, I feel I think I think he still likes me. You know, (laughs) so he had a way of holding, seeing me, and holding me in a way I could hear it, could take it in, in a good way. So honest and so pure. Equanimity is also the wisdom of accepting our limitations and capabilities. Equanimity is uh, the true humility of knowing our limitations and doing what's necessary skillfully to work with them in a good way. That is to act within our depth, not beyond our reach. And our boundaries, which can be very flexible, become instead of fear and aversion and resistance and Uh, disconnection the boundaries can be metta compassion wisdom equanimity itself uh, for ourselves and for others it's far more effective to be present within our strengths and limitations than it is to try to go beyond our boundaries beyond who we are there's a great American sports term, I think, is used in baseball, playing within oneself, which means knowing one's strengths and limitations and not trying to go beyond what we can do at that time. And therefore, being very comfortable in that reach, in that field of expression, using both the strengths and the limitations to be who we are. So, uh, for the baseball player, that would mean seeing the person play with extraordinary grace, beauty, power, depth. May not be the one who hits all the home runs or pitches all the strikeouts, but nevertheless, a consummate athlete. This is a way of living, playing within ourselves, being who we are, within our own depth. finally, stewardship of our possessions, the balance toward all beings, keeping company with balanced beings. Finally, is cultivating the mind that inclines toward equanimity. You can do this with the, the Brahma-Vihara equanimity, which will be offered um, in a week or two. And we do this from our practice of mindfulness. Practice of mindfulness means going right in to the depth of our experience, right in to our uh, blind faith or our uh, overzealous intellect or our indolent or excessive energy. Going right in and seeing how they are just in that moment, those mind states. That's what draws in the balance not avoiding, not clinging to what we want, to what feels good. Practice isn't about feeling good. It's about the good. It's about the truth. It's about being with both uh, the good and the the pleasurable and the painful. Mindfulness is that, that flow of unfabricated awareness that becomes immediately that a balance of mind, upeka, which becomes then the purest of mindfulness. And then in this, in this surround of equanimity, clear comprehension is drawn in. That is, filling our activities, whether it be awareness or our life in general, with a Creative energy and understanding. It is wise discernment. This is what adjusts our practice in the little ways that we need. We overcome our discouragement. We overcome our trying to get back what we just had in the last sitting. Or being goal-oriented. Trying to get to a state. This practice isn't state-oriented. It's process-oriented. Why? Because it's the truth. Is tuning into the truth of this moment. The mindfulness that is the initial anchor uh, for upeka to be established on experience then issues in the sense of keeping in the middle of things, of all things. That bamboo mind that's fluid, that's supple, that's flexible, able to respond from that sense of centeredness in the midst of the play of opposites. So it's the upeka that aligns all the other factors of enlightenment. It's not at the end of the list because it doesn't happen happen until the end of the list. As I said in the beginning of the series, we can see them all as arising simultaneously like different strings of an instrument, sometimes some come forward as the lead, as more prominent. And then step back, others step forward. And at a certain point, they all are in harmony together, very powerful. Equanimity at the end of the list, of course, is is purifying, empowering the mindfulness at the beginning of the list. As you can see it more as a cycle feeding each other, and also that simultaneous occurrence. It's that when they're in the most perfect balance, it's these seven factors that touch the unconditioned, the deathless. It's that mind, uh, seven-factor limbs of enlightenment that are the condition out of which the unconditioned is known. All life, all experience, then from this place of equanimity, uh, is seen in a light where the equanimity itself outshines all the impostures, the play of opposites, success, failure, win, lose, pain, pleasure. Rather, this is the centeredness that is so a core of our being that nothing can disturb. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? I'd like to end with a writing by an Indian elder called The Invitation. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dreams, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you have touched a center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, if you can dance, with wildness, and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, be realistic, or to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you're telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself, if you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. I want to know if you can be faithful and therefore be trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it is not pretty every day, and if you can source your life from God's presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand on the edge of a lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes. It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have, I want to know if you can get up after the night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done for the children. It Doesn't interest me who you are, how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away? I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company you keep in the empty moments. <laughs>